Hey everyone, my name is Nick Wignall, and you're listening to the Minds and Mics podcast. On this show, I talk with experts in the fields of psychology, behavioral science, and human potential, and try to see the world through their eyes. How do they think differently about topics as diverse as addiction and mindfulness to parenting and motivation? What do they know that most of us don't? And what can we learn from them to improve our own lives in practical, meaningful ways? Pierre Steele is an organizational psychologist and distinguished research chair at the University of Calgary, where he studies various aspects of human performance and motivation, most notably procrastination. In fact, Pierce is arguably the world's leading researcher in the science of procrastination. In a field-defining paper published in 2007, Piers used sophisticated statistical analyses to review the entire research literature on procrastination and found that while many of the traditional psychological explanations for procrastination didn't actually hold up, there were four core causes of procrastination. He went on to develop a model of procrastination and wrote about it in his book, The Procrastination Equation. In today's conversation, Piers and I get into all the gory details behind his influential work on procrastination, including how to think about procrastination, what really causes it, and some practical ideas for doing it a little less. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Pierre Steele, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Now, I got to ask you before we start, with a name like Piers Steele, how did you end up as an academic psychologist instead of an international spy or man of mystery? Like a Bond villain, yeah, I know. I, I get that a lot. And some people comment that, isn't that your porn name? And I said, nope, no, that's my actual name. <laughs> that's right. The, uh, it's, I was just, it's actually, it goes a little bit even more if you actually add the middle names, David and Gareth. So it's PDG Steel. And I said, what, yeah. some people ask me what the DG stand for. I used to just tell them, damn good. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, we're going to dive right into some of the, the gory details of your, your wonderful research. Um, especially your the thing that really struck me and where I found you, I assume a lot of other people have gotten to know you because of it, your 2007 meta-analysis of, um, of procrastination and the research on it. But but before we, we talk about the that kind of work in particular, can you sort of set the stage for us leading up to that in terms of how you got interested in studying procrastination and then sort of how your research evolved to that kind of culminating moment? Sure. I mean, there's, there's a famous adage that research is me-search. Um, of course, you can only take that so far. I've done research into sexual harassment, uh, workplace violence, and driving with a cell phone. So if all that was true, I, I'd be a terrible person. But, <laughs> but about procrastination, that is true. I, I, uh, I kept on putting things off, and it, it, to the point I was personally suffering. It, it was terrible. I left almost everything to the last minute. So when I was at university as a graduate student, not really knowing what my passion was, I happened to work as a research assistant for Thomas Brothen. And he had a wired classroom, an early predecessor to MOOCs, those massive open online courses. And every part of this classroom was wired. So you had a really nice um, objective measure of when people got things done because everything was recorded. Um, and with that, we started kind of, we did a, a study in procrastination, my first one. And I'd also been working with a Denise Owens, who was one of the first generation or second generation of people who actually learned how to do meta-analyses. And she taught me, and I here is 
a topic I want to continue with, so I made it my dissertation. I literally, literally have a degree in procrastination, and I just kept on running with it. It's it's uh, motivation more generally, also meta-analysis, but um, it's kind of strange. It defines your life, and you know, when you're ever going out and people ask you what you do when you say, well, I study procrastination, they're always interested. If you tell them that you do meta-analysis, not so much. <laughs> Can't imagine. <laughs> so, so what did you see as some of the kind of defects or, or, or shortcomings in the, the field of, of academic studying procrastination that led you to want to do this, this big meta-analysis in, in 2007? Yeah, well, one of the big ones, aside from research in general, research, any type of single study has a massive, just massive amounts of sampling error, just, you know, from low sample size, you know, just not having enough people to really kind of get, you know, the wheat from the chaff. Um, right, it's hard to draw firm yeah, conclusions when you're right, studying 20 people. Like, so if you redid it again, you know, or took out marbles from the famous urn, um, you'd get something different. It's not dependable. One study just isn't, had does, there's too many factors kind of um, influencing it, including that they simply didn't study with enough. But with meta-analysis, we can group things together. So it's, if you do a study, I do a study, somebody else does a study, we can pull it all together, trip our all sample size, reduce the error, get a much clearer signal from the noise. Um, but also a lot of it had been done with clinical psychologists. Um, and clinical psychologists said it was it, mostly about perfectionism. And it's like, really? Uh, it's not me. And I procrastinate a lot. So um, I, we went and took a, a good solid look at that. And what you, we found was that people who tend to self-refer, go to clinicians, go to kind of therapy about their procrastination, those tend to be kind of this kind of neurotic perfectionist type. While this kind of more social type of um, procrastinator, this more impulsive type, not so much. It, it's again, it's, um, they tend to not seek clinical treatment. So clinicians were seeing the self-selected group of perfectionist procrastinators and saying, oh, you know, there it is. Um, but it really only applies to a small subset of the population. There's a lot of different types. I mean, there's including like, uh, one is my, one of my favorites are the uh, demand resistance, the um, procrastinator. But basically if you tell them to do something, it just, they just gets under their, their skin and they just push <laughs> away from it. And they also tend to disagree with the diagnosis. That's why I love them so mm. much because they're kind of, they ironically prove the very thing that they're reacting against. Yeah, well, it's you know the so the the way I actually came across your your research in the first place was I was I was writing an article on procrastination and, and trying to trying to make sense of what what I experienced in my my own life, um, talking to people I knew as well as my um, a lot of my clients who struggled with procrastination was that it everybody had their like pet theory for what caused procrastination and it just never fit everybody's sort of story with procrastination was a little bit different and it 
sure, maybe one person, it, they obviously were perfectionists and that was getting in the way of them doing their work. But that for every one person like that, there were three or four who that didn't apply to at all. So your, your research was like a light bulb moment for me um, in that it really started to make sense of this, this topic that was so infuriating, um, affects so many people, but the, the experts didn't seem to have any kind of handle on what was actually going on. So let's, let's kind of dive into, tell us a little bit more specifically about how meta-analysis works and why it's such a good tool for studying something like this in particular, something like procrastination. Oh, okay. Well, it, there, there's two basically components to it. Um, well, to do it right, it, it is a horrendous amount of work. <laughs> uh, it, well, well, first thing is you know, going on the literature hunt, just trying to find all the articles that are about procrastination. Um, it, they go by different names. They're in different databases, different languages, and pulling them all together. I like in the book, it's like uh, being a, a conductor of a madhouse orchestra. You know, technically, they're all playing the same song, but in different keys, different rooms, different speeds, and you've got to put it all together into something coherent. Um, and it takes a very, very long time. And not everybody, I think, can concentrate on a topic for that period of time. There's people, plenty of people brighter than me, but I can be very patient and lovingly put things together. Um, yeah, because really does... you, you poured over, I mean, decades and decades of research on That's right, yeah. procrastination, I, I, right? I actually went back to, I uh, even got got into it, and I, I was seeing how far how far back, because there's actually there's one line of research that said, called the malady of modern times that only started with the Industrial Revolution. So I started thinking, well, let's check on that. And actually, you can trace it all the way back to actually the first writings in about the time of Thutmose III, there's a, a temple um, called the Fahari, and not a temple. Uh, well, anyway, they have they have they they have the the hieroglyphs. Unfortunately, don't talk about a buried Stargate, which would have been <laughs> way better. But they do talk about procrastination. About procrastination. <laughs> so that's fourteen hundred BC. And you can find like little pieces in um, a religious text where, sure. you know, where they talk about, you know, the problems of people putting off enlightenment and, you know, and, you know, even you can Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas, you know, dear Lord, make me chase just not today. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, um, so once you have all these things, the, the simplest way of putting it, together, and this is like, we don't do it this way, but it's as simple as just take an average. You you can put all the effect sizes, all these correlates, these associations between procrastination and anything else, and you can just average them. And, you know, that's your, you know, that's a nice thing about, that helps to get the signal because noise has this wonderful property. It has a mean of zero. It's not systematic. So if you just resample something enough times, error, noise tends to disappear. Um, and that really is kind of the fundamental meta-analysis at its most simple level. There's a lot more around science around about what's appropriate weight to give to studies, uh, making sure that your measures are the same, you know, 
there's a lot of loving detail going in there. But at the basic, that's it. So you got to get all these different measures and all these sort them together so they're all kind of, you know, roughly that you're averaging the same thing. Otherwise, it's uh, Isaac would call used to call meta analysis make a silliness. You know, it's garbage <laughs> in, garbage out. But it's once you have this all together, you can start actually putting it together and finding out what the real association. And we found out the association between uh, perfectionism and procrastination is about 0.2, which is super weak. Pretty low, yeah. Pretty low. And with things that have to deal with self-control, um, conscientiousness and impulsiveness, susceptibility to temptation, distractibility, um, they're around 0 0.5, 0 0.6, which is... Um, it, the way you actually have to, there's different ways of doing it. You actually have to square that number to get it right. And that's a percentage of variance. But just say there's no contest. Um, it, clearly not a anxiety, neuroticism related um, problem. It's got to deal with, um, it's got to deal with self-control and the ability to kind of what we'd call temporal discounting. So um, impulsiveness. Impulsive people value the now way more than the later. In fact, we all do. Um, but that is really the core of it. But it, you can get different flavors. And it's very difficult for people to make the self-diagnosis because from their point of view, their impulsiveness is pretty much a constant. So it's just who they are. But they have things they like doing. They Some people who are um, procrastinate because they're constantly socializing or constantly pulled away by social media. And that element is that what we find rewarding, what we find punishing, that differs from person to person. So, you know, we can, can say that some people procrastinate by cleaning and some people procrastinate cleaning. So what you like to do and what you don't like to do, that's going to be different from individual to individual. So we don't all procrastinate on the same things. And we're right. not always tempted by the same things. But no, so this is, this is really important. Sorry, I, I, don't, I don't mean to cut you out there, but I, I want to like pause and take stock. So essentially what you, what you did was say, okay, look, we've been studying, we've been thinking about procrastination for a millennia, millennia, and we've been studying it for a century, at least a good half a century with hundreds, if not thousands of studies about it, right? And so, and you sort of did this, well, let's separate the wheat from the chaff, right? And so what it sounds like you found is a lot of the kind of folk or clinical ideas for what causes procrastination, things like perfectionism, anxiety, low conscientiousness, stuff like that. Turns out when you kind of look at everything in aggregate, aren't all that important. And, and what you found is there, there are these sort of four factors that do really stand out that are highly predictive of procrastination. Um, you, you know who did actually a pretty good job in it? Um, I was, I was kind of like, <laughs> uh, David Hume. <laughs> oh, okay. He did a Let, really let's go back to David Hume. <laughs> That's right. How so? Inquiry but, concerning human understanding. Um, and it was uh, basically saying, you know, it, the mind is naturally constructed to pay attention to that which is near 
and to ignore that which is just far away, right? And it's um, it does it eloquently in a paragraph that I haven't committed to memory, <laughs> but <laughs> but you know there was when I saw that I kind of like oh, well I guess he's good at everything then, you know. <laughs> but it, um, but that's basically the reason for it. So, but I kind of added some more precision to it than did my bit. But yeah, there's, there's, if you look at what the correlates and what makes sense, it's it's one is value. We tend to, um, surprisingly, um, pursue things we like and avoid <laughs> things we don't. Okay, there you go. <laughs> it's value, and it's uh, but we'd like and personality is what you can like. Some people like. Like Stanley Tucci, I was reading about how he likes to vacuum the actor, likes to vacuum his oh. house twice a day, right? I don't have that same compulsion, but he finds it <laughs> soothing. So we can like different things. So some things, for example, if you're doing something that you has natural rewards, and we'd call it intrinsic rewards. So it's something that is generated during the act of doing it. Hmm. Not because um, of the outcome necessarily. Not the but. outcome, and that's very different because when the reward is in the outcome, and it's a distant outcome, that becomes very susceptible to procrastination, um, because uh, there, the big variable, as I was mentioning, is impulsiveness. Uh, another one is um, self-efficacy, self-confidence, the belief you can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to people who have doubts about whether a task will be completed successfully or will get the rewards for doing it. That's another hit on motivation. Um, there is also, of course, the, when the rewards are delivered for the task itself. You know, something that is um, naturally gives rewards in the moment or the daily rewards. It's you know we we tend to kind of that fits better with our, our psyche there, our, our, our brain's um, architecture. So when you put them all together, um, if you have... And just to be clear, task, so these four variables are um, um, well, value, value. Another is expectancy. Um, which is basically confidence, self-efficacy or self-confidence. Yeah, that's right. In other words, your impulsiveness, your personality. You, you right. tend to be... Um, and some people are less impulsive than others. And then there's the delay inherent in the task itself, delay between when you start it and when the rewards come about. Gotcha. That's right. So um, this is a bit like, um, uh, it's a bit like everybody who's been studying this is, you know, they're kind of in silos somewhat. Hmm. And it, it is like a kingdom that, you know, people have gone in different directions and focused on different aspects of the can some people said oh there's a um a tribe over here and somebody said there's resources this way and somebody says you know there's water this way and but they're still describing the same kingdom right you got to put it right. together at some point so that that's the real kind of the challenge of meta-analysis and systematic review is taking all these individual people and all their perspectives and seeing if you can somehow make something coherent out of them. And that was, I turned out I wasn't bad at that. And right. So you could sort with meta-analysis, you, you could sort of zoom out and take the 30,000 foot view right, and exactly, see yeah. like these territories are clearly within the kingdom. These ones obviously are not. Yeah. Let's see how they work together. But yeah, but somebody made that conclusion. Why? 
right? So, and you had to be able to explain why some people focused on perfectionism versus why they didn't. And it was really kind of, you know, some people get things wrong and it shouldn't be in your map. And you have to give everybody their kind of their due and respect their contributions. And, um, but you all have to be judicious as well. You have to, if they're all saying the same, one group is saying one thing, one, another group is saying something else. Uh, why? You know, you've got to give them, occasionally if one person or there's an errant paper, yeah, sure. You don't really, you can, you can dismiss those as one-offs usually, but um, you have to be able to put it all together. And that's basically what it did. And the nice thing was that eventually, instead of just doing a narrative, I actually made a mathematical equation over it. I even... Yeah, uh, so, let, so let's talk. Okay, so there, there's... There's a poem. Sort of... I made it into poem form too, if you like. A poem. <laughs> wait, hold on. Okay, wait, hold on. I'm excited. I was an English major in university, actually. So I, I want to hear all about the poem. If I can recall <laughs> but, it. But, but for, so there are these four variables, but you went beyond that and said, well, it's not just there, these variables. There's actually a relationship between these four. Yeah, that's right. They exactly. kind of, they work together. So, so walk us through the equation and how they work together, both mathematically and poetically, if, you, if you're oh. so inclined. <laughs> um, well, it, it, there was a line of research on task adversiveness as a predictor. Okay. Um, Mil, Milgram. I did a different oh, Milgram yeah. from the one that... Stanley Milgram, yeah. No, that, not that Milgram. Not that Milgram. <laughs> <laughs> different kind of aversiveness. <laughs> And um, he did a lot on task adversiveness and a lot of, you also people do a list of what people are putting off. Hmm. And um, there is also some of the earlier ones was about, you know, we tend to put off tasks that are not enjoyable, right? So there was this entire kind of an, um, task adversiveness line of research. Um, there's one, then you get this with Albert Bandura who just, you know, he, this is what he, mostly what he focused on was on self-efficacy. Mm -hmm. And that's a belief that you can do something. Of course, we have adages like, if you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. Right. Um, which, yeah, okay. It, it in, in life, it would say, uh, in, re in reality, we'd probably say, um, if you believe you can't, you're less likely to put in and resources and effort to it, um, which reduces your chance of success and you're less likely to succeed. But that doesn't trip off the tongue quite as easily as the first. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, um, yeah, of course, if you believe you can, you still might not be able to do it, but you're less likely to right. do it if you don't actually have. Well, and one, one point on that that I really appreciated from, from reading your stuff is that th this, your self-efficacy, your belief in your ability to do something, it's, I think most people tend to think of it as this kind of global personality trait, like I'm confident or I'm not, but yeah. really it's, it's pretty domain specific, right? So your oh, yeah, self-efficacy with writing an English paper is going to be very different than your self-efficacy for dunking a basketball, for instance, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 And it, the, and there's also these mean mundane things that we don't even think about having it. We just do it because the, the, our self-efficacy for them has been a hundred percent since forever. Yeah. Tying my shoes. Incredible yeah, self-confidence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, there, there can be circumstances where 
that is not a hundred percent. Right. I have a few yeah. too many drinks at if the bar and right, exactly. <laughs> self-efficacy goes down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, um, so, um, and then you can find, for example, you know, there's a classic economics equation, a motivation called subjective, subjective expected utility theory, which is just rational gambling, um, which is that we tend to pursue things that we value multiplied by the probability of being able to achieve them. And if you do any type of gambling, this is pretty much what they all do. So, um, and they kind of take that as this general um, model of human nature. So, and so consequently, uh, economists don't actually typically believe that people are capable of procrastination. They actually take a, um, a Socratic viewpoint that man cannot knowingly do wrong. So in this case, um, we always do from an economics point, whatever is in our best interest, you know, our, what we believe in is in our best interest. Right. So, which makes procrastination really difficult because actually when I was doing this, I was also trying to get a good definition of it, which is a bit like trying to build a boat while you're sailing it. <laughs> so, um, and I put it all, all these pieces together and, um, and basically the shortest one is it's an irrational delay. So, and a little bit long, it's a voluntary delay um, or putting off of a course of action despite expecting to be worse off for that delay. Right, so and that's the kicker, wrong. right? You you know that it's in your, it's not in your long term right. best interest. Yeah, yeah. And you could be wrong. Sometimes we put off things, and I'm like, and the heavens part, and you know, <laughs> there's a chorus of angels, and the task was canceled. Oh gosh, what a glorious moment in all of our, you know, when that happens, right? But or, um, but we net, we didn't expect it. So normally you expect to be worse off for it, but you put it off anyway. Which is why it's so maddening, right? It's Which why it's why so maddening. It's, self, it's, self, yeah. it's self-harm. Right. And why do we do this? And you can actually, now you're getting into the bottom part of the equation. Top part is expecting to value. This is the part that um, uh, the economists don't really deal well with. They use a um, exponential discounting function, which is more rational and but all the evidence points towards hyperbolic, of course, <laughs> which, is, which gets, uh, you can get preference reversals. So Okay, wait, uh, sketch, sketch that out for us. For those of us who, who aren't up to date on our kind of economic curvatures, um, exponential versus uh, hyperbolic. Hyperbolic. Well, um, I'll just focus on the hyperbolic, if you don't mind. Yeah, the, so what is that? Uh, hyperbolic discounting, like what, what, is, what is that exactly? Um, well, it basically, it, it's um, that under the bottom of the denominator of the equation, you'll have a little constant, like a one. Most people just put one in there um, to prevent it from going to infinity when time gets short. So it's you know expecting time's value divided by one plus a delay, and then there's a function for delay about how much effective has and that function is itself now affected by how impulsive you are. And 
impulsiveness, even though it can fluctuate a little bit by whether you had a few drinks or whether you're tired or not. Um, but it's mostly a stable trait for people. So when um, delay gets small, motivation gets big. So when does delay get small? Well, just before deadlines. So right. until we're getting to the deadline, we might want to do something. But when we look inside ourselves for the motivation, it simply isn't there until delay gets small. Yeah, this is the classic student's dilemma, right? You get the syllabus, you have all the deadlines. You, you right. think things are easy in the beginning of the semester. I should really, you know, get ahead of this term paper. And the, before you know, it's the night before it's due, That's right? right. <laughs> and do you see this in this power line of comparative psychology, which investigated this with rats and pigeons, which was really interesting. Miser did one all the stuff showing that pigeons can procrastinate, um, which is... Yeah. Yeah, it, it'd be very clever. He kind of t taught them two different types of reward systems. One, which is basically would give them much more food, but they would have to wait a little while or they could go and get something quick, but it would require a little more, a lot more work. Um, and they, you can see the pigeons struggling <laughs> with <laughs> With you know whether they had the patience to delay, right? Oh, so and this if, this is the marshmallow test for pigeons. Well, yeah, there is a marshmallow <laughs> test basically. Yeah, so I, I've read recent research that we've over kind of extended that, but it's, um, but yeah, but this, this is basically how our minds work. It's it's and um, it's natural. I mean, we we have we're we're fitted to an environment of evolution and adaption. We all have this basically built-in discount function which works really well if you're hunting gathering right you know, so just and just to be clear that's so it, if i'm a hunter gatherer out on the plains of the savannah and i and i stumble upon a snickers bar like i'm gonna eat that snickers bar right now because i don't yeah, know yeah, when I the mean, next I mean, time i'm gonna get a meal spoils, is. man you gotta eat it now i mean what are you gonna <laughs> right. save it for right right it's 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 you know i'll tell you what you know put some milk on the counter without refrigeration and you know tell me how long you're going to leave it there before you consume it and uh, most of the calories are trying to get away from you right or kill you so right. you kind of it's 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 you know we we evolved to love fats and sugars easy sources we're also evolved to put a sharp discount on this really unpredictable undependable future so because the so in other words, it, yeah it makes sense to go for what we know yeah, right, what you right know, now. what you have, a bird in the hand, it's worth two in the bush. Exactly. Right? Yep. It's, 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 or four or five, really, if you think you ever try and catch a bird, right? <laughs> <laughs> right you must be a really good hunter if it's only worth two. The, um, uh, but we have this mismatch with nowadays. So, for one thing, we've got is this all these super long-term projects. Hmm. I mean, you know, four-year degrees, insane. You know, like retirement right. plans, we're just not really built for this. So, um, and if you want to layer on top of that, um, the temptations, they have, do you, do you remember, like, recall what YouTube was like when it first started? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, it's like three minutes and grainy. Anyway, uh -huh. <laughs> and now we can have watch entire movies in high def and 
it's even beyond that. The Google has now, through um, a complete erosion of personal privacy, um, they we have no privacy really, and they use that to uh, fine tune their algorithms. So they put in front of us out of the you know the billions of videos the exact one they think that we're going to most likely consume so uh, the, the temptations we have are immediate which is really difficult for us to do to and really high value which is also difficult for us mm. so the, we're living a golden age of procrastination i mean i i don't blame people shouldn't blame themselves for procrastinating but they sh because the world is entirely stacked against you. It's, it's, you work in the same place you play, and right now the, those temptations are really good. I mean, games get better, videos get better, they all get better. And they get better at understanding exactly how to get that in front of you so you can get it to it in like a second, one second. Yeah, and this is one of those things that really resonated with with your work when I read it because as a, as a clinical psychologist, I'm constantly frustrated with my field because we're so we're so internal. Like everything's about your your thoughts or your you know your your moods or whatever. And we, and we we chronically ignore the importance of environment on how we think yeah, and how we feel right, and yeah. what we do and and so this I, I feel like the way you present procrastination is it's very humane because it acknowledges sort of the complexity of it's not just a matter of like grit your teeth and you know show up and pull yourself up by your bootstraps oh, i know i know like i hate stephen covey's like, uh, <laughs> like uh, why wow, you should do first things first well thank you oh my <laughs> gosh you solved it how about going down and like, we got a, we got problems with people who are depressed just be happy fantastic you're just yep. knocking them out the park cheer today, up. aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Cheer <laughs> Stop up. Stop worrying, cheer up, get your stuff done. You know, <laughs> what's the yeah. big deal? That's what the big deal. It is a big deal. I mean, you know, as a sufferer of procrastination, I um, I can't have too many temptations that are easily available. Or I'll, I understand myself. I know I'll make use of them, right? It's difficult for me to have that nearby, which is unfortunate. It's because... Um, you know, I don't want to live in a world without chocolate, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, but I don't want to be consuming the, you know, the, the foot-long Toblerone bar, right? That's a lot of, that's too much. But if I start having it, if it's right in front of me, I can continue consuming it because it's delicious and it's overly available. Right. So... Um, you know, I, I have to do, if I have, I find if I have dark chocolate, it satisfies me more quickly, but these other, these, these things like games, they're, the world's not designed around giving you just enough of this temptation to satisfy you and then making it difficult to get, because that's not how free market capitalism may actually, I end up working at a business school. So I guess I'm allowed to criticize it without, um, advocating for communism. But um, it's the free market capitalism is based upon, it works best when you have rational consumers. And things like impulsiveness, it's, it, that's a rational part of our, our code, really. And they become really, really good at finding basically the holes in our operating system, the little parts, and then building a world around exploiting them 
you know, from lottery tickets to candy by the checkout counter, right? And this this virtual or, or, con- world, or constant sort of stimulation on your right, phone in your pocket, right? right? You got novelty and excitement right there. That's all right. The time. And it's it's hacking our choices. So because from an evolutionary perspective, we are kind of wired to prioritize what's close and what's available. That's right. And fat, salt, and sugar, which were used to be really difficult to get to. So now we have a super abundance of them and we overconsume. Um, right. And, you know, we wouldn't be here today if our ancestors didn't thought fat, salt, and sugar was just the yummiest thing ever, right? You know, we, we're, we're here because of these preferences. And only very recently have we now just such an understanding and a super abundance of them that they've become toxic to us. You know, the, the dosage makes the poison. Um, so what can we do about it? Uh, it's the world is so slow at patching. It exploits, it's more profitable to build exploits than to build patches. And so that's what we're kind of all struggling with. And most of the patching is kind of done to the individual. It's not done on an environmental level. The exploits are done on an environmental level. No. But the the patching is that's yeah, well that's your responsibility. You you know, you go figure that out. Um, right, which is did, something it's for people who really understand human nature, if they want to move you in a certain way, it's it's telling that they would rather control the environment. Oh yeah. yeah right? Yeah, yeah, that that yeah, that's exactly. a really powerful kind of influence on our behavior is that they want you to believe the the Stephen Covey myth that like, well, if you just put your mind to it, like you'll get it done. Oh, yeah, that's right. All yeah, the while right. they're controlling the environment. That's right. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, don't look behind the curtain. You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. The, um, if you, you know, this has been documented almost every step of the way. I mean, if you want a, a great book on it, check out uh, Huxley's Brave New World Revisited nonfiction. Ray's New World oh. Revisited, and he talks about how all these forces of science have been used to basically hack human nature. Um, and, but it wasn't really until the advent of big data and the behavioral surplus of having all our clicks and searches and then being able to feed that back to us in a way that predicts exactly what temptation or product we're most likely to consume has it really come into the golden age of procrastination. Um, and that's today. So, um, you know, it's, it's, what can you really kind of, um, you know, we, I tracked it over time because, you know, that's what I do. I kind of study this stuff. And um, it, you can see, like, the, in, uh, it creeping up. First, the historical narrative. From, I like one of my favorite ones was talking about the problem of roll top desks. <laughs> 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 this was like 1910. And, you know, they allow you to kind of close off all your work so you can't uh-huh. see it. And therefore, you know, out of sight, out of mind, you can procrastinate. Gotcha. And then the problem of the silver screen and of television and then video games, you know, and you're talking about Pong. And each one of these was a little bit of increase in procrastination. Um, But it's, and it makes sense. I mean, when you have better and better temptations that are more easily available, 
you know, I used to call it dieting in, in a candy store. <laughs> you, know? And, you know, people say, oh, you should, it's your problem. You know, you're eating too much candy. Just choose not to. And he said, right. are you sure it's not being in a candy store? Because I think that might have something to do with it too. Right. And uh, no, see this, there's, there's, there's this person, they live in the candy store and they're not, you know, well, I think they're freaks actually. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's got to be a few people like that, like you know, some of them people who have this insane metabolism or for whatever reason are um, are would be an evolutionary dead end if they lived 500 years ago, you know, because they don't like fat, salt and sugar. Right. But, right. Um, well, OK, but what do you make of this as someone who studies, I mean, psychology and, and motivation more generally, not just procrastination? What do you make of the idea of willpower? You know, um, Baumeister kind of popularized it with a lot of his research 10, 15 oh, yeah, years right, ago. Yeah. What, um, what do you make of that? Because clearly we have this mechanism where we can, you know, you watch little kids taking the marshmallow test and some of them do kind of, even though they can't change their environment, they, they sort of figure out a way to resist. But it, it seems like a, what, yeah, what do you make of that? Of, well, of the idea of willpower? Yeah, I, like, I like his reason. I mean, there's some more recent stuff. We likened energy and people kind of, mm -hmm. <clears throat> if you want to get precise, it doesn't actually work that way. Right. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he talked about, you know, blood glucose and then people did these metabolic and it doesn't work that way either. Right. But as an analogy, it's really good. You know, in terms of thinking about psychic energy or willpower in the sense that it's, um, I kind of think of it, you know, when you have drywall and you have that, line between two pieces of drywall and mm. you need a little polyfiller to fill it up yep uh, that's where willpower is useful that little bit where you're going from one thing to another but you don't want to make an entire wall out of polyfiller that's <laughs> Right. I, I like that might be my new metaphor. The, the one I've used for a long time for willpower is it's like the emergency brake on your car. You, you want to have it, but you definitely don't want to rely on it for daily right. use like that. And, and there, there, there's, there's fun things. I mean, um, it, it's the people who accept that their willpower is imperfect tend to make better use of it. Oh, and are less susceptible temptations because they, you know, they do things like, hey, you know, somebody said, well, why don't you come down, you know, to the bar for a drink, you know, and I said, well, I got a project. And then your friend says, oh, one drink. And some people, yeah, I guess one drink's fine. But other people know it's never going to be one drink, man. So, right. You know, I, I, I love your company too much. I'd always want to have more. I got to stay here. Till it's done. It's the, and that's, somebody who knows themselves knows about that their willpower is imperfect that once they're down there that's over um you know it, it some people say you know you know no I, I can't i can't shop now i'm hungry i always you know buy half the store if i'm shopping when i'm hungry <laughs> right and that's somebody who knows themselves that's somebody with the willpower said i will simply say no Right. As I go through this, and my willpower will be perfect, and it's like, yeah, it doesn't work as work as well as you might think. So, um, you know, keeping yourself away from temptation. There's even like little bits in the Bible about that. And um, I, I bring it up to my wife. I can tell you to no avail that the uh, it, there, it talks about how that if the husband is going on a trip or is being away from his wife, they should come together know each other right uh -huh. so he be not be tempted uh -huh, right 
when yeah. during when yeah, I mean, it, it, it's right in, it's, it's there in the lord's prayer right that's lead right. us not that's into right. temptation yeah. it's not help me deal with temptation it's don't that's let right. me get in there in the first place yeah and that, that's a neat technique it's called pre-satiation right Ooh, tell us about um, that pre-satiation. Oh yeah, there's lots. It's, in, it's all in the book. I, I, there's like there's 25 different techniques, but, but right. how it deals with Bowmeister is um, there's ways of making the best use of your willpower. That's one of them, and it's um, instead of um, and I, I like the best version I've ever seen um, of it was called the unschedule where you hmm. actually put into your downtime and pleasure activities first into your calendar, not your work, your, your actual, what you, what you, you're kind of, your you're kind of, you're basically your kind of minimum operating set and saying, I can, I can commit to this. This is a lifestyle I can, you know, be accept. Cause some people, when they, when they go through it, they, they deny everything of themselves all their pleasures and they begin to resent it and it is not sustainable. So you can think, what can you sustain? What can you commit to? And this will have things like a certain amount of downtime, certain amount of socialization and all these other elements. And you try and kind of get into that where you now satiate some of these needs because this is drive theory is that, you know, if you don't attend to these your these kind of basic elements about you need to belong, need to socialize. And I think uh, we're actually experiencing it now quite a bit in the quarantine, the need to belong, to be with other sure. people. I need it. <laughs> it gets bigger as it gets unaddressed. And eventually it will commandeer your behavior in, in sometimes kind of like a binge manner, which is not what you really want. So you want to be able to actually kind of keep your, temptations small enough you know they're that they that they don't actualize or start kind of commanding your attention at an opportune time it's just basically you got you got to accept that you're human um there's other ones of course another great one is um simply distancing temptations which is can be really difficult to do but you know that out of sight out of mind and sometimes it's, and there's been wonderful experiments on this. Did, did you, do you remember the one about the, uh, the ice cream coffin? Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, people are coming along and you know, they're going through the cafeteria. And so they turn up the freezer really kind of high in the ice cream coffin and then open the lid. So the, you don't, it, it, it's, it's not closed anymore. So people can just reach in and grab an ice cream bar. And um, then after the end of the lunch break, they can put the lid back on. Um, and of course, you know, like it, it, people are consuming two to three times as much ice cream because, you know. Because <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> yeah, but there's other ones. I mean, like uh, if you put, I mean, that, that's just ice cream, but it's kind of, well, how much can you take this principle? They found if they give people painkillers in a, in, a, in a jar, right, where you can just take off the top, and swallow them, they're much more likely to use it for suicide. Wow. Much, much likely than if you actually give them in a foil blister pack. You know, can you, you know, sure. <laughs> people popping out the pills. Oh, this is so much work. It's I just enough live. friction. Yeah. 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 And just, yeah, I can have to take a sandwich instead. Right. The, but it's also how much 
even if, if, if it can influence the choice of whether to live or not, something as momentous of that, this is a pretty powerful lever about decision-making. Right. Right. So if you want to actually have base, you know, you want to go to the gym, right? Well, if you get home, there's so many triggers in home. Your home, we fill our home full of temptation triggers, right? So once you get home, you're not likely going, you know, you turn on the TV, I'll just tired. I watch five minutes. That's, you're not going to get up. But if you have your gym bag in the car and it's in the front seat beside you or someplace obvious and you have to go by the gym or the class at some time, that's a different trigger. It's a stimulus response and you're much more likely to follow through. There's all these things like... um, Well, sorry, real quick. I love this because I think one of the big, to me, one of the big problems with the over-reliance on willpower as a strategy to, to combat procrastination is it, it prevents you from thinking creatively about how you can arrange your environment to be more conducive to our goals. I think we just write off environmental changes because it seems like, well, it's my environment. I can't really change it. It is what it is. And I think that's largely a function of we just don't spend enough time thinking about how can we be creative about sort of even just modifying, like you're saying, modifying our environment slightly. Have your gym bag in your car instead yeah. of, you know, at home. If I, um, at the end of my book, I kind of wrote about, uh, I tried to do a few examples of um, fictionalized characters. Uh, right. Apparently people tell me I should keep with the nonfiction. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like them, man. The, the, well, I, I know, but great. they had to, they had to pop. I, had, I had to show in some way people putting these principles in the work because that's sure. where it really falls down. Yep. is that um, we can talk about it, but for some reason, people have tremendous difficulty actually kind of figuring out how these apply to their lives. That's why the importance of you know, life coaches and therapists and clinicians is that they are blessed with the ability to see application from principle. And if I was and, going and to, to address a, obst- unique obstacles, that's the other that's big one, you. I think, right? Because yeah. you can have the principle, but you're going to get hit with all sorts of unique situations and p- points of friction that are. Yeah. And also, I mean, there's also period refinement too, where, you know, they try and do it and it didn't work immediately. So they give up and said, no, 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 no. If this is, tell me what happened. Okay. Let's do a little bit of, uh, you know, adjustment here. Try this one. And usually within two or three times, you're right where you need to be, but people don't have faith because it's their first time. I guess that's the, that's the expectancy part of actually dealing with procrastination. Yeah, the confidence there. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and confidence. And um, some people, for example, have tried to deal with it so many times on their own, but they don't have the principles, but they now have this almost learned helplessness that, you know, I have to make peace with procrastination and it's and peace with that I can't overcome this. And humors, you see a lot of humor because humor is a coping mechanism, an emotional right. coping mechanism. So um, if I was going to write another book, actually, I might just do it on that. Just a whole bunch of examples of how these things are put into practice. And again and again, because that's where I see most people struggling with. They just have difficulty seeing how close they are or 
you know, why it isn't working for them. It, it's, it's, it's well, in Paris, I, I think that's as a clinician myself who I help a, or try to help a decent number of people with procrastination. What, what I, you absolutely should write the book because I think one of the things that's so helpful about your approach and with the, with the procrastination equation in particular is it's, it doesn't, it seems like everything else in procrastination, it takes this like silver bullet approach. Well, there's this one thing, you know, if you just stop being such a perfectionist and be okay with, you know, yeah, getting yeah, a B plus, right. like that'll take care of it. But what your, your approach is so much more flexible where you can go to someone and say, okay, so you're not, you're not writing your term papers on time. Well, let's look at these different aspects that we know are related to procrastination and see which one for you and in your specific situation is really making you vulnerable. That's right, yeah. Then we can be targeted in how we approach procrastination. And that I've found that to be, it's so, well, it, it for one thing, it just really boosts that sense of self-confidence because they realize it's not that I'm a procrastinator. It's that in a given situation, there's this one variable that's really off. And if I can address that, I can really get over the hump often. And, and where are we now? I mean, we're still dealing with, uh, most people still, the only thing they get is goal setting. And not even good goal setting theory. They get like uh, the one from Greg Dorn from 1982. He wrote a newsletter about how to manage teams. And he decided to put in an acronym and called, uh, you know, SMART goals. Oh, right. Yeah. And he just, this was just, and he was just spitballing and it wasn't bad. I mean, it's, you know, right. it's about in this experience and, you know, it's sure, you know, it, but it, it it's not even that, it's not that good. And it's, does it actually help people? Yeah, somewhat, but it's, it's kind of like, is this all we're capable of? 1982, you know? <laughs> no offense, 1982. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, not, but it, it, it's, it, you know, they, the, they don't even get the actual mechanisms of it. Correct. Right. right. Um, it's, it's about, I'd say it's about two thirds, right? It's missing parts and it doesn't consistent with the system. Well, when, when I think, and when I think of your book and, and your, your work, what it, the, the image in my head is like, I'm struggling with procrastination. And, and for me, what that, that's like sitting down in the cockpit of a plane and seeing this enormous dashboard with all sorts of buzzing, like lights and indicators and knobs and levers. And, and what your book does is say, okay, look, most of this stuff doesn't matter. Here are the four big ones. Let's think carefully about which ones of those are most important given your goals That's and objectives. Right. And if, if um, it's one of the things I do a lot, and fortunately, um, there's more to do than I'll ever. I've even had five lifetimes, but I've made some progress along this line is to make a diagnostic test. So mm. the first one is the very basic level, and I succeeded in that. And just whether people's problems are going to be an expectancy or value or impulsiveness related. Right. And, um, and all, a lot of those are on your website, right? A lot of those yeah, yeah, kind that's of right. self-assessment. Right. Yeah, yeah. uh, we'll have that in the show notes too. Beyond that, um, the next stage is actually to ask people about what skills are already in their repertoire. So, you know, if we, we shouldn't teach people things that they have already mastered, um, you know, or once we have, for example, say, okay, here's where your kind of problem there's a bunch of techniques that are useful for that. Let's start going through them and seeing which one you can commit to, which one is most you, you can. Right. Some of the ones have um, bigger impact, but they take longer to take effect. 
And when you're dealing with procrastinators, you want everything to be instant, right? <laughs> Get some quick um, wins. Yeah, yeah. So they need to, you need to start with the quick wins, the ones that are really easy. And, you know, like uh, we talk about the simplest one, of course, is taking off the um, notifications off your phone and email. Because you know, when was the last time you were in a flow state doing work and then your email dinged, you realize this was far more important. Right. <laughs> like, ever? Did it ever happen? But that's, you know, it's um, great books actually about how the competition for your ad- attention. It's just, I mean, they've talked about you're on one side of a stadium and you have 10,000 people on the other side waving and shouting and trying to get your horns. There's a great book called The Attentional Economy. Oh. All of them trying to get it because if they have your attention, they can they can commercialize it. Right, they get your wallet. <laughs> they get your wallet. But it's just perhaps, just throwing it out there, maybe you don't want to give them your attention. You know, Maybe you're doing something, maybe you have your own personal dreams or aspirations in life. And you need a way of shutting them off of of allowing yourself some quiet that's difficult to achieve right right right. yeah and for anyone who wants to kind of learn more about the these kind of specific techniques it appears his book is just loaded with them and they're they're really like applicable and specific i try to put every bit in there i love it no it's great it's like and you can sort of choose your own adventure you can just kind of pick which one seems like it would be best for you um at a given time so yeah you, you need to check out that the, the book too. It's it's also just a fun read, I think. And not, Piers is not um, slipping me twenties under the table to say this. I, <laughs> I genuinely like it and enjoyed it. Um, okay, let's. I want to I want to let you go here in a few minutes, but I, I want to zoom out a little bit and and get your take on some kind of bigger picture questions about procrastination. And but before I do that, I got uh, two quick kind of reader questions. A couple of my readers um, submitted some questions, and I want to get your quick take on them. Someone asked what I thought was an interesting question. They asked you, as a someone who researches and studies procrastination in psychology, how do you think about the difference between laziness and procrastination? Are they the same? Oh, yeah. Are they different? I, 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 I have thought about this. this is, <laughs> I, I don't have. Okay. Um, what makes it procrastination is that on some level you actually wanted to do it. You, you wanted to do something. You had an intention. Uh, lazy people actually didn't. They didn't care. Mm-hmm. So okay. <laughs> so they both look like inaction. From the external point of view, they both look the same. That's why they can be easily confused. Right. They're both not doing the work they're supposed to. But one of them, only one of them, is actually feeling guilt about it. Uh-huh. And it's that, it's that feeling of regret, remorse, at uh, some level, you want to have the motivation to pursue it. And if that makes it by your own standards, not somebody else's, if by your own standards you want to do it, that's procrastination. Gotcha. That's great. Okay, another one I thought was really interesting. What do we know specifically about procrastination in kids? Are there developmental differences in the tendency to procrastinate? Uh, there's a chapter in the book about that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I should, should write it uh, I, I actually I, I feel like I should have donated more in my life to this, but um, it's it's got to do with the development of the prefrontal cortex. 
So um, if you, of course, right, you know, we uh, got an equation, but what's equation modeling? It's modeling really a kind of duet between the limbic system, which is more of stimulus response is considered the kind of, um, and, but it has this direct line to the amygdala where you have the strong emotions in the prefrontal cortex. And some people call this the executive function. You can think of, you know, people in a corner office making decisions. So when we make plans for the future that have not yet exists, you know, this abstract kind of um, tomorrow, that's the prefrontal cortex. But when we feel strongly for in the moment, that's the limbic system. So what you have is the limbic system prefronting the carefully laid plans of the prefrontal cortex. And basically there is a evolutionary principle called, you know, last evolved, last developed. Um, Ontogeny, late phylogeny or something like that. Right. Um, if that was helpful, um, but it basically means that the prefrontal cortex is the last thing that actually gets developed and sometimes not the finishing touches until the early 20s. It's a long time. So parents are actually acting as the children's external prefrontal cortex, you know, and trying to get them to do their work and think about the future, but eventually they become adults. There you go. So how do you do, how do you do I mean, um, you have kids, right, Pierce? Yes, you have. So how do you how do you do that if you if you've got a kid who's and I know this is a huge question but like what what's your top tip you got a kid who's really struggling with procrastination how do you help it, what's the helpful way to serve as an an external prefrontal cortex for your okay, kid yeah well there's two things one is getting rid of temptation well there's a couple of things one is get rid of temptations I mean we live in such a temptation filled point one one like a laptop which um, okay they have to do work on their laptop. It does that says an internet accessibility too. We we give them ones where we actually can block YouTube, right? Or you can buy software which does the same thing, a little more sophisticated. <clears throat> a lot of professional writers do the same thing. Adults because difficult to get work done when temptations nearby. You want it to be routines. Kids thrive in routines, clear lines. So. Um, uh, when, if there's a steady time, it's the same time every day. You try and really make it regular. Um, large projects, like essays, they are not capable of breaking them down, right? They don't have, um, part of it is they're actually, goal setting is actually makes sense, right? The, you know, um, you know, Mark Twain, you know, says this, the secret of getting things done is, um, breaking things down into the smaller components and starting the first one. Um, you know, so it's not really new wisdom, but it's, um, but how do we do this? How do you kind of take a project and say, you know, what part of that am I going to do today? And they need help with that hand over hand. Um, you can also do some things about, um, about, you know, sometimes to start a, something you need a 10 minute goal. Um, I think about that as projects have surface tension. So you need to be popped. You need a sharp, very sharp, short, you know, surgical task. You can see the a line of sight goal to get it started. Um, and I, I, sorry, real quick. eventually I was, you're trying to teach them how to do this themselves. I was listening to another organizational psychologist, Adam Grant. Do you know Adam Grant? Uh, no, I... I uh, Yes, I think, he's, I think he's at Wharton. We had arguments um, over it because 
he advocated um, that procrastination was a great way of increasing creativity. Uh, right. And I said, oh, you mean like those 300 <laughs> studies before you about incubation? <laughs> <laughs> well, he, I was listening to him in a podcast and he had, he had an interesting point. He said he, it's common wisdom to, um, you know, don't check your email until you get your, your primary work done. And what he said is he often spends half an hour checking his email the first thing when he sits down because he feels like it's like a warm up. It sort of gets him going. Um, and it's so maybe it's that surface tension thing where it kind of gives you a pop and then you can you can kind of dive into yeah I, whatever I else say, you need to do sure and then after that you turn it off or right don't have it accessible yeah, yeah. I I'd sometimes get into tasks sideways yeah so right. I can't uh, frontal assault doesn't work for me so when writing I can't write so maybe I'll just do headings or get words or let's say you let's steal um you know, like other people's quotations, right? Just yeah. get their ideas down. I love it. And eventually you can get in the point where you then are into it and you can kind write warm it, your way in. Yeah. You warm your way in. So what do you, what do you see right now as sort of the big outstanding questions in this field that we don't have good, at least empirical answers to when it comes to procrastination? Are there any that kind of stand out to you? Like if you had a if you had a star student who who wanted to kind of blaze a trail, like where what yeah, sort of direction yeah, okay. would they head? Yeah. It's um, science tends to proceed from um, simply just understanding it that this construct or this field part exists. You know, at one point it was just even defining, let's say, for autism, mm. you know, autism exists, procrastination exists. Then it gets into uh, measurement. How do we measure it? And we're pretty much through that stage. Then it's prediction. Um, so, which we're pretty much done too. And now we're moving into control. So how do we actually, what treatments are best for whom? So what we had before is a lot of main effects. So, you know, like as you were mentioning these books, everyone should do this. But it's um, a mixed effect is like some people should do this treatment. Some people should do that. And how best to unroll it ah. so how best to actually put these treatments into effect that's where we're kind of at right now so tailoring so specific interventions yeah. to specific tailoring people specific in specific contexts yeah. and i think actually a lot of can be done we tried with a few online apps but it's um it, it there i began to appreciate from that that App design is a, is an art. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seemed pretty straightforward at the time, but uh, but there's right now and since then I think there's somebody did actually the summary of 350 different options and oh, what wow. they actually can put together. But it's the um, that's what I kind of would really like to see, and I think MOOCs are the perfect place to do it. You get some of these large MOOCs which are struggling with people not completing them, right? They're all trying to do the same course, just like we just basic, think back to my dissertation. And you have, they're willing to actually participate in, in answering survey questions about themselves. And you can put them into different intervention groups and seeing you know which one increases the likelihood for them to actually um, finish this course um if that is i think if somebody gets involved with a large mooc 
um, gets a stream of data from these 100,000 people classes um, to advance more about how to treat procrastination in the next five years than we've done in the last 25. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a small end, but I will tell you my, my success rate treating procrastination uh, pre and post learning about your work has definitely improved. My so I think, I think the future is promising. Um, well, Pierce, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and share all your, um, your insights with us. Where can people go if they want to learn more about you and your work? Um, oh, I have for, a website. And what it, what's the address? Yeah, uh, pro, just procrastinus will get you there. Okay. So, and I'll, I'll um, link to it in the show notes too. Yeah. So if you, it's, I was, um, yeah, just type in the word procrastinus and it comes up. And, you know, there's, you can measure procrastination, the typologies about the book, about the theory. Um, for a while there, I was in a big quotation quit um, kick. And I collected like about 200 quotes about procrastination. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, including, um, you know, going back to from every culture, from every time period. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Minds and Mics. If you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you took one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps out a lot. And if you've already done that, please consider sharing Minds and Mics with a friend or family member you think would enjoy it. As always, thank you for continuing to support the show, and we'll see you next time.